there's a handful of different wind instruments, including that Spanish water flute that you're hearing right there. Is that the bird sounding thing? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Or water whistle, I guess, would be more technically called. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, costume designer and craft services coordinator for Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. What? (laughs) You'll just have to keep listening and find out what that's a reference to, I guess. Or you could have read the very short Wikipedia page for the artist we're talking about tonight. No. No. Okay. All right. I'm co-host Jeremy, and I'm here to inform you guys that I've entered the podcast into a crypto partnership. Okay. I'm releasing a line of NFTs called Cool Cat Black Hat Club. And they're like little, little fedoras mostly, and you can like put them in photoshop and you can like add them to your your special little av av avatars and And you think now is the best time to enter the nft market i think now is the best time to enter the nft joke market because it's never been done before gatos pequeños yes little cats is that right you got it yes (laughs) well I look forward to seeing where this goes, Jeremy. You know where it's going? Where's it going? The podcast mansion. After these sell out, then we're finally getting the podcast mansion. (laughs) You know, that that brings me to a good question, actually. My child the other day was talking about the podcast mansion and asked what it would look like and if it would, in fact, be a Mount Rushmore-style copy of our faces that we would live in. (laughs) Yes, it will be that. I'm wow. glad we could clarify that. Eloise is going to need to know this information. Well, she's hired as our official designer now of in interior and exterior of Perfect. the podcast mansion. Yeah. Clearly, Eloise has the instincts that we need for this design and construction. True. We've really gone in some weird directions already, and we haven't even gotten <laughs> to our third co-host. <laughs> Oh, yes. Well, I am co-host Peter Cook, but for the purposes of this episode, you can call me Caballo. Caballo. Do you know what a Caballo is? Is that like head? No, that'd be Cabeza. Oh. A Caballo, Jeremy, is a horse. Oh, no. (laughs) My least favorite animal. Why are you that? Because it's your least favorite animal. Oh, man. (laughs) Just for you. I am caballo for this episode. There is an animal I I dislike more than horses. Ooh, do tell. It's mosquitoes. That's reasonable. Except for that one on the Paul Horn record. He's cool. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The most famous and important mosquito of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Well, the most underappreciated at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. Underpaid, too, as we established on that episode. (laughs) Yeah. So, Sean, why don't you uh, tell us, or our listeners, rather, what we are talking about this week on the podcast. This week, we are talking about a famous saxophone player who is most often unfairly tossed aside as just another smooth jazz guy forgotten in time. I'm here to prove that the great Gato Barbieri is a legend that deserves so much more respect than he gets. And we're going to talk about his amazing record, Chapter 1, Latin America. Not Chapter 2, Neil Simon. No, not that one. No. Do you know why I bring that up, Sean? No. (laughs) 
it was mentioned on Seinfeld one time, so I figured you would just latch right onto it. Oh, <laughs> it I was bad the, that I let you down there. It was like the the note that Jerry's ex had written to him as like this pouring out of the heart, and then he realized that it was just from a Neil Simon play. <laughs> right? Yeah, I remember that. It has nothing to do with the record we're wow, talking about. Have today. we talked about the record at all yet? No, we should probably just listen to some of it. Hey. Well, I did say what the name of the record is, but that, that's about it. Let's let's let the music speak for itself. This is side A, track one, Encuentros, which means encounters. I thought Peter was going to jump in. You know, for once, I decided not to interrupt you and it threw you off. <laughs> I've come to expect it. Now I don't know what to do. <laughs> All right, here's the music. For me, some quintessential gato playing on it. You have the repetitive yet kind of shifting licks broken up by these beautifully controlled saxophone screams. The whole effect is just very emotional and kind of hypnotic. It sounded like it was going to get a little scronky there. Oh, it does. It, it wasn't uh, the smoothness that you mentioned he tends to get lumped into. Exactly. A lot of people don't realize that before he made his millions doing smoothed out jazz funk, he was a full on free jazz player. And we'll we'll get into some of that history a little more throughout the episode. Yeah. That was when I was reading more about Gato, I was surprised that that's like not that much of his history actually was the smooth jazz stuff. <laughs> like he has at least as much history in free jazz and then this period that's kind of like a bridge between the two. Yeah, exactly. If you listen to his whole catalog of music, the the jazz funk stuff makes total sense in his kind of progression and changing of influences. But yeah, as far as recorded material, there's there's tons of early Gato work that's in various levels of free jazz. And he spent more time playing the smoother jazz kind of stuff after those records came out in the mid and late seventies, he kind of stayed in that field for the most of the rest of his career and like live performances and stuff, which is partly why he's so commonly associated with it. This is budding right up against that time period, right? This was 73. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So he's like, I don't know, I guess we'll, we'll get into his background, but imagine he's quite a few years into his career already at this point. Correct. Correct. And yeah, we will get into the full career arc after the next song. But the only thing I want to note here is that 
this album just has such a fun energy to it. You know, there's a lot of discordant sounds and some free jazz scrunk, but the energy is just so fun and pure. And you can really hear how Gato has this way of bringing out the most from the bands that he played with. You can actually hear the players getting excited at times and getting more energetic, just being led by this passionate saxophone player. And his fiery tone. That's oh my what... God. That's what yeah. jumps out to me as like the most recognizable Gato thing is like he's got this, even when he's playing like smooth and softer, there's like a buzzing kind of like grit still in his tone. Mm-hmm. He's a lively cat. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, this record does a really good job of showing off his range as a saxophone player as well. A lot of the free jazz stuff he did before this, it was like, full scronk loud saxophone sounds throughout but you can get soft and beautiful even though there is still that little bit of grit left there even when he's at his quietest so this album as we'll get into was critically acclaimed unless you're reading any user reviews that you'll find online most of which generally just consist of why he not play good like on caliente which was the the big smooth <laughs> record <laughs> Sometimes so I, sometimes in researching, I find like really cool hidden information just from reading like album user reviews and stuff. But this one, not so much. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I've found things in user reviews for certain artists that I couldn't necessarily find in bigger bodies of information. Which you know, if it's on the internet, I, I suppose everything's sus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I actually found a pretty interesting thread in a saxophone forum where people were trying to figure out what kind of like mouthpiece Gato uses which in case for some reason that interests you he uses an absurdly soft mouthpiece and it's very small and apparently he said to someone at some point that almost no one can even make a sound come out of his saxophone if they pick it up Mm. he has a very bizarre setup but the thread definitely got into people being like, why do you want to sound like Gato? He's like boring smooth jazz. And then a bunch of like <laughs> jazz heads coming in and being like, actually, <laughs> actually like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. Posting videos of him with Don Cherry, just being like far out. <laughs> yeah, jazz exactly. Dude. Exactly. I think, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, if if the average person had tried to pick up his guitar, wouldn't have been able to play it because he used really high gauge strings and high action. It was oh. you know, which, for those who aren't guitar players, would make it very difficult to do bends and <laughs> and play fast. And yeah, that's I, interesting. I, I had no idea about that. I'm sure yeah. that's why his tone is so unique. Well, that's yeah. That was I mean that was an intentional move on both of those guys' part just to create a unique tone that would set themselves apart from everyone else. They were both very unique players. Yeah. And it worked. Exactly. The last thing I wanted to note before we get into another song, if you listen to a lot of Gato's catalog, especially before this, you'll notice that percussion was always critical to his sound. And this record and some of the ones he was doing right around this time period are prime examples of that. In fact, previous to this, he would often have members of his groups double as percussionists. So you can find live videos of, you know, the piano players and the bass players setting aside their instrument for a second and picking up various handheld percussion things to add different flavors to different sections of the song. I imagine that having a very authentic percussion sound on this record was a top priority. The track we just listened to, I just, you kind of saying that and thinking about it, you know what this reminds me a little bit of is kind of the freewheeling feeling of van morrison's astral weeks which that makes sense i mean that was uh, an intentional experiment combining folk and jazz which is two things that is not often combined so that's that's a really interesting parallel i hadn't thought about that one yet yeah we were listening to the guitar in the, that opening and i was looking at jeremy just kind of noting how it was sort of loose looser than i would expect it to feel and uh, and then, yeah, now that I think about it, Astral Weeks, kind of the same way. Yeah. If Van Morrison had been more of a free jazz head, we might have ended up with an Astral Weeks that sounded kind of like this. <laughs> Another universe. Yeah. What could have happened? All right, let's dive into another song. 
This one is called India, Side A, Track 2. Track 2. magic it really is and it just keeps getting more magical the more times i listen to that there's obviously a lot going on so you can really you know get deeper and deeper into this record with repeated listening yeah all those wind instruments on top of each other with like different tones but all like kind of wispy and it uh feels very Kind of psychedelic aurora borealis <laughs> spirits mm-hmm. dancing in nature. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's a different energy going on in this record. It's certainly not what most people would expect. Yeah, where's my smoothness? <laughs> well, do you want the full story that leads up to the smoothness? Yeah. I've got the whole story right here for you. So sit back and let's learn about Get out your sandpaper. <laughs> <laughs> So, our hero was born Leandro Barbieri on November 28th, 1932 in Rosario, Argentina. He shares a birthplace with Che Guevara and a birthday with Randy Newman and Chameleon Air. Hmm. You really did your research for <laughs> I this really one. did, yeah. <laughs> uh, four men who spent their entire lives just trying to avoid being caught riding dirty, as we all know. <laughs> oh my. Wow. I applaud you, Sean. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I'm I'm shocked at how little Che Guevara has come up on the podcast. Wait, why? <laughs> why? <laughs> Was that something you expected when you first imagined this podcast, talking about Dollar Bin Records and a lot of Che Guevara, maybe a little Tupac? I, I thought that Jeremy Ruggles would be, ride hard for Che Guevara. Not publicly on the radio. Uh, good point. <laughs> Delete all this then. Yeah, I get monitored <laughs> enough already, I'm sure. Jesus. I mean, Gato was definitely a bit of a revolutionary and was politically active, would you know, talk on stage, had some kind of political songs. In fact, chapter three of this series is entitled Viva Emilio Zapata. Yeah. Mm. So he knew what he was doing. Should I tell him who Zapata is? Yeah, you want to give like the briefest... I'll give a super brief. He was a revolutionary in the early 1900s, I believe, in southern Mexico, pushing for turning the farmland back over to the people actually working the farms. And there are still Zapatistas today pushing for his revolution. Thank you. Yeah. Very interesting history. For the quick history lesson. Yeah. <laughs> back to Gato. 
Despite being born into a family of musicians, Leandro didn't start studying music until age 12 when he picked up clarinet after first hearing Charlie Parker's Now's the Time in 1945. As a side note, that song was originally released on 78 and features both Max Roach and Miles Davis on it as well. It's kind of interesting to think that his musical interests actually predate the LP. Yeah. Peter, do you remember what year the LP came out? Can I it's, guess first? It, yeah, yes. you can guess first. Is it 57? No. Um, it's a little earlier than that. Oh. I would say it's around 1950, maybe like 1948. You are right, sir. The LP was came out in 1948, and the 45 came out in response a year later in 1949. Wow. Somewhere that was stored in my head. There you go. <laughs> Thanks for pulling that out. Also in 1949, Charlie Parker recorded a few songs with the Machito Orchestra, which was a legendary Cuban dance band from the time. These sides became an essential point in the history of Latin jazz. Leandro moved to Buenos Aires in 1947, where he began learning the alto saxophone. This is where he received the nickname Gato, when he was playing around this time in two bands at once, both a tango orchestra and a jazz band, and he would have to, quote, scamper between late-night clubs to make both gigs. Scamper feels like the right word. I was yeah. watching a, a live concert from 1984 that I just wanted to watch a little bit of and ended up watching pretty much all of it. <laughs> but he's a like a large, imposing figure, but like... He, I don't know, he struck me as very alien for some reason. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I watched this great live video of him playing with Santana, and like the beginning of it, it just seems like one of the most boring, lifeless sets. And then by the time Gato's done with his solo, the band is just like moving around and freaking out, and the music is like exciting. It's like a whole different band after like five minutes of listening to this guy and just being on stage with him. Yeah, he's got the energy. He's got the fire. Yeah. <laughs> Gato. By the late 1950s, Gato had also picked up the tenor saxophone and had become an in-demand local musician. His first big break came when he was hired by Argentina's greatest musical export, Lalo Schifrin. For those who are not aware, Lalo is a prolific genius composer, most notable for his soundtrack work, including the original Mission Impossible TV show, Rush Hour, Rush Hour 2, and Rush Hour 3. <laughs> All the essentials. Among various other projects. Yeah, I'm guessing that's a curated list for me. Yeah, highly curated. <laughs> In 1962, Gatto moved to Rome with his Italian-born wife, Michelle. He quickly immersed himself in the Italian jazz scene and can be heard on a handful of hard bop and big band records from this time. The following year, he met trumpeter Don Cherry and became enamored with free jazz. Peter, do you want to give a, a brief history of who Don Cherry is? <laughs> oh boy, a brief history of, of Don Cherry. I don't know where to start, but he is kind of, uh, he is one of the essential free jazz musicians. You know, he, he would definitely be on the free jazz Mount Rushmore. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, he worked with Ornette Coleman. Yeah, I mean, you could say he was there for the actual birth of free jazz. Yeah, yep. And we, we discussed him not too long ago because uh, his children have gone on to musical careers as well. Like Eagle Eye Cherry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. And Nena Cherry. Yep, yep. Um, he also notably did some soundtrack work with Alejandro Jodorowsky. Yeah, yeah. He's it, Don Cherry, his name it's so many different places he for a free jazz musician he has worked with so many people yes and he's also not to be confused with the lounge musician don cherry <laughs> I mean, that's exactly <laughs> what i was gonna say is I, I once bought a 45 like oh don cherry 45 and it, i got it home and it was not what i was expecting yep. <laughs> it was not the same don cherry i feel like many jazz collectors had that moment early on <laughs> so gato became particularly influenced by the playing of John Coltrane, Albert Eiler, and Farrell Sanders, as were just about every other free jazz saxophone player at the time. You can hear him playing on a couple 
pretty legendary Don Cherry records, Togetherness and Complete Communion, both from 1966, and also on Symphony for Improvisers from 1967. Also in 1967, the great ESP disc released Gato's first album as a band leader in Search of Mystery. Nice. Over the next few years, he recorded with players like Gary Burton, Dollar Brand, Charlie Hayden's Liberation Music Orchestra, Carla Blay, Oliver Nelson, and others. You can hear his trademark fiery playing on the opening track of Carla Blay's epic 1971 album, Escalator Over the Hill. An album that often gets ranked in like the top 10 of jazz records of all time. I don't think I've heard that one. It's, a, it's worth checking out. It's dense. It's a lot to get through, but it's really, really good. Huh. I'm going to have to, yeah. Yeah? I imagine myself as pretty knowledgeable about jazz, but clearly not. Yeah. I, I think that, that goes for like all music. The moment when you think, like, yeah, I've got a good handle on this, you realize that you're just scratching the surface somehow. <laughs> yeah. That's what this podcast has done to me. Yeah. That's why we're <laughs> here, <laughs> to keep learning that lesson it's, over and over again. <laughs> yep. So in 1971, Gato signed to the Flying Dutchman label, one of my favorite jazz labels, and released one of his best records called Phoenix, an album which I actually just found while out digging today. So I took that as a very good sign. Ooh, it was meant to be. It was meant to be. The spirit of Gato was guiding my digging fingers. Like a phoenix rising. (laughs) In 1972, Gato's career really took off again when he won a Grammy for his work on the soundtrack to the movie Last Tango in Paris, a film that was controversial when it was released and has not aged well. Yeah. (laughs) I'll say. Yeah. We don't need to get into the details on that, but listen to his soundtrack work. Maybe don't watch the movie. Anyway, the director Bertolucci had hired Gatto for Last Tango as he wanted a sound that was sensuous but not too Hollywood and not too European, and Gatto was the perfect median. By being South American. <laughs> well, and having spent time in the US and Europe and not really assimilated too far into any of those sounds, he still was this kind of unique combination of all these different influences. Yeah, because this is when he would have been starting to re-add in, like, South American influences, correct? Yeah, that would have started around, like, 69 was when he first started getting interested in that. He had felt that as much as he loved being in the free jazz world, there was still an essential part of himself that was missing, and a a friend had inspired him to re-explore his roots and combine that into the music. So because of his massive success winning an actual Grammy... He was signed to Impulse Records in 1973 and basically given complete artistic freedom. Gatto's concept was to release a four-part series combining jazz and South American music. The first three records would focus on sounds from different countries, and the fourth would be a live album in New York featuring players from all over the Americas. As you said, he had been experimenting with combining free jazz and his Latin musical roots for a few years now, and this new series was the culmination of these efforts. Chapter 1, Latin America, the first release, obviously, is a tribute to his home country of Argentina and was recorded almost entirely in Buenos Aires. The final track was recorded in Rio with separate musicians, but that was basically just intended as kind of a sneak preview of the second chapter. This new band that he assembled in Argentina in a lot of ways reflected his own mix of traditional and modern influences, which to me is what really makes this record unique. Most other Latin or avant-garde jazz groups that were experimenting in similar ways had simply been augmenting their sound with Latin percussion or folk instruments, traveling to another country and assembling a studio band without any names recognizable to a Western audience was rare. But putting together a 13-piece group and mixing together local studio pros with traditional folk musicians was unheard of. And I would say that Gato pulls it off with this authenticity completely unmatched in the decades of often cringy world music to come. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it feels like sort of, I mean, it feels authentic, but it's like its own thing. Like it doesn't... It has those influences, 
from South America, but it's definitely like Gato's thing. Yeah, you can tell there's no playbook that they're running off of for this, and I think that adds to the excitement and the looseness of the record. It's just that it is this unique thing in music in a lot of ways. Yeah, when I was checking this out, going in, you know, not familiar with with it and expecting to hear some playing traditions rooted in jazz, I was highly surprised mm-hmm. <laughs> by what, mm-hmm. what I heard. It, it was, you know, obviously there were, with, with Gatos playing, there's some of that going on, but some of the other instrumentation, it was just like not rooted in jazz <laughs> at, at playing <laughs> what, at all. Yeah. And it's still, it's so beautiful though. And I love what he did with this record. Yeah, well, it, it kind of gives it this trained outsider type of quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having that kind of authentic folk and the free jazz, there, it's weird how some elements of those two seemingly opposite worlds kind of connect in a beautiful kind of outsider music type of way. Yeah. Well, so we mentioned this new 13-piece band that he put together. I'm going to real quick read through the list of players that are on it. On percussion, we have three guys, Elzerdo Reusner, Dominga Cura, and George Padin on a whole bunch of different wind instruments that I'm not even going to attempt to try and list. We have two guys, Raul Mercado and Antonio Pantoa. On harp, we have Amadeo Monges. On acoustic guitars, including various like smaller, fewer string guitars, we have Cuelo Palacios and Isoka Fumero. On electric guitar, we have Ricardo Liu electric bass, we have Adalberto Sevasco, and on drums we have Pocho Lapubel. Yeah, I haven't heard of any of those people before. And, you know, unless you grew up in Argentina around this time, there's basically no way that you would have. Can confirm, Jeremy yep. did not grow up in Argentina <laughs> around this time. One thing I wanted to note, there seems to have been some sort of pushback to recording in Argentina the inside of the gatefold has this written in the thank you section uh quote the producer would like to acknowledge the extensive help given him every step along the way by all the people involved in buenos aires and rio after having received detailed warnings about working under quote third world conditions he wishes to make clear that the thoughtfulness and consideration involved at every step in the album made a difficult project a delightful one I'm really guessing that a big part of Gato's intent with this project was definitely to spread awareness of Latin American culture and also to push back against harmful stereotypes. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me wonder w- what kind of warnings he was getting and from who. But Yeah, I don't know. It seemed... It seemed kind of strange. There's like he had recorded an album before this called Third World and there's another mention on this record about like how he had pulled off this astonishing feat of recording in the third world. And it's just like, why are we mentioning that so much? It's just there's some like odd elements in researching this from that. Yeah. Well, 1973, it's not Argentina, but that's the year that Chile had their nine 11, the, the coup. I'm sure Jeremy's familiar with that. No, <laughs> I can't. I can't just off the cuff go into details about it. But that you know, Chile's right next to Argentina, right? Yeah, geographically, that much I know. Yeah. <laughs> so the you know this would have been right in that time. Maybe you know South America was a hotbed. Well, uh, through like the fifties, there was a military dictatorship happening, and then that was overthrown by a revolution. So there was definitely a lot of political goings on in our turmoil turmoil. Yes. That was the word I was looking for. Thank you. (laughs) There we go. So, you know, it could simply just be a reference to that, but you know, just wanted to mention it. All right, let's, let's dive into another track here. This one is the longest track on the album and also the longest track title, which is La China Leoncia, Areo La Corentanada, Trejo Entre, La Muchachada, La Flor de la Juventud. Which, Flawless pronunciation. Thank you. <laughs> I looked into trying to figure out what this song title means, and no one really knows because it involves made-up words and 
Argentinian slang, which would be difficult to really translate unless you were from Argentina in that time, but roughly translated, China Leoncia would be someone's name. China would have been a slang term, usually referring to someone living within the interior of Argentina and is most likely quite racist in origin. China Leoncia, spur on the quarantine people, brought with the young men the flower of youth is the best translation that I was able to find. You did well, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go ahead and listen to that one, which is Side B, track one. basically free jazz (laughs) (laughs) it really was Uh, also that was just part one of four parts to that track so it goes a few different places but yeah that one felt in a lot of ways similar to what you might have heard in a previous more free jazz styled song from him that one sounds like something you would hear on yeah like a uh more free jazz focused label i feel like from this time period like a maybe almost Anthony Braxton or something, Sean, you think? Yeah, it could definitely be that. You know, like I said, a lot of the free jazz groups around this time, especially like Art Ensemble of Chicago, were doing a lot yeah. of experimenting with smaller kind of folk-based instruments. Yeah, well, that's the that's another one I'm thinking of. What is the label that a lot of that stuff was on? Actuel? Yeah. Yeah. yeah they were doing a bunch of free jazz stuff. Yeah, it, it kind of sounds like some of the stuff you hear on those records. Sure. And, you know, Impulse Records was in a lot of ways considered like the premier free jazz label you know that's where coltrane did a lot of his best work archie shep was on there you know they did a lot of more mainstream stuff as well but they were no strangers to the more out styles they knew they knew they knew knew what was was up up. they were heads they were ready for it also this is a grammy winning sax player he gets to do whatever he wants now I wish that that was the direction all Grammy winners took. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) How did he end up a smooth jazz guy then? So I'll finish the bio here. Uh, All four chapters in the series were critically lauded and earned him a dedicated international fan base. In fact, he was so popular that the saxophone playing Muppet Zoot was based on him. That, uh, he played in the Muppet Band, Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem, from my intro. Oh, is that what that is? I didn't... That's that's what that is. I don't like Muppets. I'm a grown-up. Well, yeah, obviously. I should have known. And you were never a child. No, I was born a grown-up. I was born a very small grown-up. <laughs> Jaded from the get-go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So due to all this success and acclaim that Gatto has accrued so far in his career, in 1976, he was signed to A&M Records and released the Herp Alpert-produced Caliente, 
This was by far his best-selling album and in many ways established the archetypal sultry sax sound for all smooth jazz to come. Which to me is just fascinating that like he got this sound from a free jazz background and then found out later on that it fits perfectly on these well-produced string laden smooth jazz records and then you have people for all time just basically mimicking Gatto. He set himself free and then reeled it in. Yep. <laughs> and then went straight to the bank. Yeah, I feel like the f- kind of fiery tone he has with like that little bit of grit always, it gives like some contrast to the smooth jazz sound that makes it more interesting to me than most smooth jazz I listen to. That's why I ended up listening to the whole like 1984 concert I was watching. It was almost all smooth jazz fusiony stuff and i don't normally dig that but he he gives it some edge that keeps it interesting exactly you've, uh, you've come a long way with smooth jazz oh boy <laughs> in general jeremy <laughs> you opened up this can of worms <laughs> and now we'll put you under the microscope in episode 17 you said <laughs> why do people like smooth jazz oh i can't wait that's how we'll open uh season five let's say it'll be like the trial of jeremy ruggles and smooth jazz <laughs> the evolution of his changing opinions you can hear his enlightenment happening in real time on this podcast jr versus sj <laughs> oh boy So as we said, this album often, well, Caliente, the album, often gets unfairly criticized and is one of the easiest records to find in a dollar bin. Hot. However, the album has some great New York session players on it, many people that we have talked about before, and it's a great buy for the jazz funk heads out there, as is pretty much any Gato record. Caliente? Caliente. Look in any dollar bin, you will find it. You will not be you will not be disappointed if you can tolerate the smooth jazz funk. Cool. So Gatto continued to work up into the eighties until his wife Michelle passed away. After that, he retired from the public eye for about a decade and then made a comeback in the late nineties, performed regularly and successfully up until his own passing in twenty sixteen at the age of eighty three. Mm. He was with us till pretty recently. Fairly recently, yeah. And was performing monthly at the Blue Note Club and making festival appearances and seemed to be able to close out the last couple of decades of his career as a celebrated musician. You love to hear it. You love to see people get their flowers. Exactly. Well, before we head into the closing segments, I just wanted to give you guys this one Gato quote. In those days, he said, referring to the 1970s, the jazz people, they don't consider me a jazz musician. If I'm Latin, they don't consider me Latin. So here I am in the middle. It's a good thing, though, he added. You know why? Because they say, what do you play? And I say, I play my music. Gato Barbieri. Dang. Smooth. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Well, Well, does someone want to ask me if I've found any similar records? Hey, Sean. Hey, Jeremy. Did you have any Oreos before we started? I didn't. Oh. I just ate an Oreo, Sean. (laughs) On microphone? I walked away from the microphone to do it. Oh, a real pro. That's why I haven't said anything for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) Peek behind the curtains of the process here. (laughs) My dog, Socrates, is whispering something in my ear. Okay. Oh, he wants to know if you have a uh, similar record you might recommend to this. Well, thanks for asking, but um, actually I don't. I really thought long and hard about this, (laughs) and I just couldn't think of any good parallels that really sound or capture the spirit of this record that you could find in the dollar bin. You could maybe make some cases for some expensive free jazz records kind of getting close to this sound, but it, it was a tough one. Uh, one interesting parallel on a record that we've covered previously was War's Deliver the Word, which came out the same year in 1973 and also is kind of mining a Latin fusion universal street music sound, but obviously with a much different result than this record. Maybe not a direct like comparison, but what about like Herbie Mann? I feel like there's something there, especially in the like viewing of him as 
kind of cheesy, but in actuality having legit jazz credentials. Yeah, you could definitely make some Herbie Mann comparisons. And he was also a guy that actually traveled to South America when he was doing his like world fusion experiments. Another one that I got from 1971 is Lalo Schifrin's Rock Requiem. It is a record that, again, sounds nothing like this, but is interesting because Gacho played with him. And it's a record that I want to feature in the future. So that's one to look for. And then another thing that I just wanted to mention is in researching this record, I started learning about more and more interesting bands coming from Argentina around this time and discovered that there's actually a lot of really cool psych and weirdo jazz that was happening all across South America in the seventies. And I want to recommend two of those records that are super not dollar bin. They're actually quite rare, but look them up online and expand your knowledge of South American alternative music. The first one is Billy Bond y la Pisada del Rock and Roll, their self-titled <laughs> record from 1971, which was an album that Peter was actually familiar with ahead of time. Well, I was I'm familiar with Billy Bond because my our friend Matt Wood introduced me to him many years ago and uh yeah, I know a little bit. That was kind of, I was aware of there being kind of this Argentinian psychedelic rock scene through some of Matt's uh, delvings and divings. Yeah. So Billy Bond, the person, was a member of a influential early beat rock and roll music group in Argentina called Los Guantes Negros, which also featured the guitarist Ricardo Liu, who we featured playing electric guitar on this record. So that is one of the connections there. Another record that is connected with this one that I highly recommend checking out is El Trio's Todo en su Medida y Arimono Semente from 1974. That is the rhythm section from this record. So that's Ricardo Liu on guitar, Adalberto Sivasco on bass, and Pocho Lapubal on drums. Those three guys in particular were considered kind of the cream of the crop of studio musicians, especially jazz-based studio musicians in Argentina at that time. And their record in El Trio together is just top-notch psychedelic jazz funk with some weird like pop and folk influences mixed in here and there. Definitely one to look for. So you did find some. I did find some. It doesn't quite fit the similar dollar bin requirement, but there's some interesting stuff to to listen to nonetheless well yeah and while we're kind of stepping outside of the usual dollar bin recommendations if you like really scronky abrasive saxophone there is a japanese player that i would recommend who i don't even know if his stuff is on lp vinyl everything i know of his is on cd pressed many years after his death because I think most of them were from live performances. That would be Karu Abe. Are you familiar with him, Sean? Oh yeah, definitely. I feel like we used to talk about him like 2010-ish when I was doing my wider show and playing weird stuff like that all the time. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, it's a lot of it's just solo sax or maybe him with a drummer and it's just (laughs) it's just fascinating. documents of a very unique player Mm -hmm. and you can find that stuff on the internet again you can listen to rare records on youtube and streaming services it's great you don't (laughs) just have to find them in the bins anymore yeah if you have internet access to listen to this podcast you can access music online too (laughs) pro tech (laughs) oh my gosh you guys uh is it time to go out with our final track then yeah (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, Remember, you can always check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. Many bonus episodes have been recorded. We put up a monthly mix for people at the $10 and up tier. There's a vinyl subscription where our beloved co-host Sean Hartman will send you some curated selections from his own collection. (laughs) Yeah, so check that out, patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. What are we going out on, Sean? 
We are going out on the track Nunca Mas, which means Nevermore. This track has a much more stripped down backing band. It's just bass and piano and button accordion plus gatos, saxophone, and a little bit of percussion at the beginning. Uh, this track has a great, almost whimsical kind of feel to it, and there's some really cool interplay between Gato's sax and the bandonian, also known as a button accordion, which is played by one of Argentina's biggest folk music stars, Dino Salusi. Oh, yeah. Everybody knows Dino. <laughs> Back where I'm from. Well, they're going to now once they hear this track. Yeah, back where Jeremy's from. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, Sean, this is a fantastic record. Thank you for bringing it to the podcast. Thank you for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. And I'm Sean Hartman. Quoth the Raven. Milka Moss! <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you.